1: down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, you get 30, you get 20, 20, 20, get 20, 20, get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month, sold. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch.
2: $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Mm.
0: This is a true crime podcast, as the title suggests, so please consider this your warning, that it's not suitable for children, and it probably will contain content that may be triggering to some people. Also, it's an Australian true crime podcast, so Australian Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander listeners should be aware it may contain the voices of deceased people.
3: The producers of this podcast recognise the traditional owners of the land on which it's
0: recorded. They pay respect to the Aboriginal elders past, present and those emerging.
3: And when they walked in, they found this note above the electricity meter and it said, ring triple O, we are both dead, mum in bedroom, me in shed.
0: Journalist Paula Doneman has been writing about crime for decades, including a stint as the ABC's Queensland crime editor. She's covered literally thousands of crimes over the course of her career, but the one that stays with her isn't the most violent or the most infamous. In fact, it's a story that not everyone is convinced includes a crime at all. In 2006, a man took his own life on his remote country property. Even in his final moments, Arthur Thompson took steps to control every element of the situation and the narrative that would follow, but he seems to have forgotten one tiny detail. Among the many fascinating and eccentric relics uncovered during the cleanup of the old farmhouse, one small discovery reminded everyone of the somewhat unresolved question of the whereabouts of Arthur's wife, Susan. Paula Donovan joins us on Australian True Crime with the Mysteries Upon Mysteries of
3: Arthur and Susan Thompson. She was an apprentice hairdresser in Sydney and she just took off with Arthur, eight years her senior. He was a garbage collector. They met in 1965 and they just kind of lived in Sydney for a while, I think, then moved to Queensland, Sunshine Coast. I know by 1984, Susan's mother, Marie Shaw, who Susan had been estranged from for at least five or so years, moved to a place called Kilkeven in the Sunshine Coast hinterland to be near Susan and Arthur. And by that time, I think Arthur's mother was living with them as well.
0: That's it, already painting an interesting picture of Susan. She's at 15, which was, I suppose, not, certainly not unheard of in the 60s to be 15 and working full time. But she's run away and then later in life she's estranged, as you said, from her from her mum for a period of time. So what sort of
3: person, what have you learned about Susan as a person? So this, this is the bizarre thing. There's not a lot, not a lot. Mm. Her mum really struggled to talk to police about her daughter when they did try to interview her and talk to her. She got quite overwhelmed. And Marie, sure, her mother passed away in 2020, but her carer contacted police and told them that Marie had spoken to him a little bit more about Susan's life, confided a little bit more, which was that she felt like a prisoner in her own home, that she felt she was forced to look after her mother-in-law, Isabella, who was housebound with arthritis, and that she didn't have much of a life by the sound of it. And I suppose when you sort of ask what, what was Susan like, no one actually really knows because when she was with Arthur, they led a very reclusive life. Any time she left the property with Arthur, all of her interactions were cursory. Like she was just sort of, oh, yeah, Susan turned up at the work site, Susan stayed at the work camp, but they didn't have a lot to do with her. And Arthur was always present, even in those limited outside exchanges and interactions. So she didn't have close friendships? She didn't- No, no close friends. No. And it's odd that like when they eventually... Moved to Cushney, which is, I don't know if you're very familiar with Queensland, Michelle, but it's between Mergin and Kingaroy in, in our South Burnett area, you know, rural Queensland. I grew up in Toowoomba, and, but I've never heard of Cushney. It's tamed terribly for me, I guess, uh, when I started working on this. I had to actually go and look up Cushney, which is terrible. But, but yeah, as you know, like these small country towns, usually very close-knit and people get to know each other and you might be miles from your neighbour, but you all know each other. Certainly the women. The women
0: oftentimes do form a real... Community, that's what the Country Women's Association was born from.
3: But she wasn't a, a joiner in that sense. No, she was absent. She didn't make those connections. And if you try and look through anyone trying to describe her, it was always very minimal. There wasn't any insight into her character, what her dreams were, what she wanted to do. There, were, there was nothing. It seemed like her life revolved around Arthur's. Did she
0: keep up with the hairdressing? Did she work?
3: Nope. She, ne- she didn't work.
0: Did they have kids? No. So they're the
3: two outlets normally, aren't they? That yeah, that give you those connections to the community or, uh, or more connections to the community, but no. He worked um, and would often go away a few days at a time. Um, it, was, it was manual work, but he would often go into, like he would go into the town of Cushney and go to the pub and go and sit down and have a drink with his mates. He... he told sometimes he's a little bit inconsistent about himself. Like he would tell one friend that he was a only child, another another mate, he said, Oh no, I've got a brother. Like he told kind of conflicting stories about himself. And if he ever had mates out to the house, they'd go drink in the shed. And Susan would be in the house. So again
0: they're having those cursory exchanges yeah. with her. G'day Susan. Yeah.
3: G'day. And out to the shed. Yep. Yeah, no no insight into her or who or who she is, which makes this like this it's kind of like that overriding issue for this case, isn't it, that we just you don't know who she is and it's really hard to fill in the, the pieces.
0: Well, it's the victimology, isn't it? It's like trying to piece together where she, she is has to begin with who she is.
3: Mm. No one knows. What was the latest photo of Susan? Well, that's the other thing. I don't even know where, the, where police sourced the photos from. It might have been from her mum. Uh, that they ended up on the Supreme Court file. But they're very dated. Like there's, I'd say probably back in the 60s and 70s. So it sounds like you're saying
0: no one kind of knew anything about her really until she disappeared. Is that what you're saying?
3: Until this moment, this day? Pretty much. In August 2006, the police get a call to go to the Thompson, Arthur Thompson's property where he lives with with Susan and his mother-in-law, Isabella. So... They go there and they find, because a couple of mates of Arthur's were worried about him, a bit worried about his welfare, so they went to go and check on him and when they walked in, they found this note that was crudely basically sticky taped above the electricity meter and it said, ring triple O, we are both dead, mum in bedroom, me in shed. They called the police immediately the police turn up, property's pretty much in darkness and it's quite isolated to the point where a couple of the detectives go and stand in the paddock and they can't see the neighbouring lights. They can't see other houses or any other sign of life, basically. And I think if you yelled, you probably couldn't be heard. Again, like on this on, you know, big old Queenslander, um, as you all well know, growing up in Toowoomba, what they're like. So yeah. they find Arthur in his car and he's got a gunshot wound to the head. Isabella is dead and she's in her bed very neatly tucked in. And so at first they think this is a meta-suicide. Killed the mum and then he's he's, he's killed himself. But an autopsy shows that basically Isabella's died from natural causes and Arthur has then gone into the shed and killed himself. In the search of the house, they find the money for the electricity bill to the cent left under that electricity meter, because I think Arthur thought that the meter guys always come out, right? You have to come out and check your uh, electricity. So I think he was banking on that, probably not his mates turning up. And they find a calendar marking, which said, mum dead, and it's got like an arrow, uh, mum gone, 1.30am, August 15, and the 15 scrubbed out on the, on the calendar. So I suppose to give a bit of a road map, As to, you know, what had happened. Uh, No, he left no suicide note, nothing else. And one of the detectives, when I interviewed them, described the house like a museum. Like there was a lot of furniture that they bought over that his parents and grandparents had bought over from England, still with like the tags, like pounds attached to them, like in pristine condition, like never used, like a museum, like these objects to admire. But possibly not use and they said that there was no sign of anyone living there but Arthur and Isabella and they start searching a cupboard and they find this letter that's dated November 8, 1999 and it's written by Susan Thompson. So that's six years prior. Yeah, six years prior. The letter basically is Susan writing to her mother and it's a photocopy of the letter which is very bizarre in itself because no one knows how Arthur got this copy because the only person to receive it was Susan's mother and Susan's mother told police subsequently that she never gave him a copy so no one knows how unless he took a copy or what happened but it's very interesting because she she sort of talks about in the letter she basically says that life's pretty strained for the two of them at that time one minute they're at each other's throats the next minute they're okay but But life's pretty strained. And she basically tells her mum that she can't call her because it would come up on the telephone bill and Arthur checks the telephone bills, right? Number by number, by number. But back in the old days when we used to get, old days, but in 1999 when you would get an itemised phone bill and know who you've called, et cetera, especially with long distance because by that time they're living in Cushney and Marie Shaw moved with her husband, Susan's stepdad, down to Tasmania. So Susan tells her in this letter, uh, I can't call you, you can call me, but if Arthur answers hang up or if if I answer and Arthur's here, basically I'll have to hang up. Write me a letter instead that just tells me about my stepdad's funeral. But when you sign it, don't sign love mum, sign mum. Oh, so that suggests that she didn't want Arthur to know they'd reconciled. They had reconciled well and truly by then. They were in contact, but obviously quite limited contact. And when her mother... And stepdad moved to the Sunshine Coast in 84 to be with them. They only lasted there two years because Marie was terrified of storms. And you remember what Queensland storms can yeah, be like? Yeah. Um, so they they then moved to Tasmania and stayed, stayed there until both of them actually passed. So um, Marie passed in 2020 eventually after moving into a nursing home. So to go back to that letter of Susan's, she basically is telling a mother to, to, of how to communicate with her and that things, things aren't great. So,
0: I mean, it's, it feels to me as though he's, he's kept that
3: photocopy as
0: evidence of her misbehaving. Because he's so controlling, it feels like I, I sort of imagine a scenario where he's saying, I know you wrote this letter to your mum. I've got it. Here it is. And he's, he's shown it to her.
3: It's really possible. Like if he's if he's checking phone bills, is it beyond that he's checking her mail?
0: There's obviously what we would now call coercive control. There's a lot yeah, of... Yeah, exactly. It's a very abusive relationship and she's under an in, enormous amount of
3: control and he's controlling every aspect of her life. The other interesting document too is, Michelle, that they find a doctor's referral from 1975 that says to a psychiatrist but to send Arthur to that, could you please see my patient? He is telling me that he is having uncontrollable fits of rage. So 10 years into his relationship, they're living in Sydney, and the doctor actually says that those uncontrollable fits of rage, which erupt and then go away, so then it's normal that he has an uncontrollable fit of rage. But he talk, the doctor talks about those uh, fits, potentially having very serious consequences. So this is back in 1975. And it's odd that he keeps a letter of his wife that doesn't paint him in a good light, does it? Like that the way that he talks about, the way she talks about him, as you said, what we would now deem coercive control. Like don't ring because he checks the phone bill. If you sign the letter, put mum, not love mum. I don't know how he got... No one knows how he got a copy of that letter. It's very strange. Why he kept it, I don't know. Why would you keep a 1975 doctor's referral that, again, doesn't paint you in a good light? And one of the most compelling aspects to this is that that letter that Susan wrote to her mum was written about six weeks before the last time that she was confirmed of being seen alive. So at the end of December... She goes to her GP and has a has an appointment with the GP and then that's the last confirmed sighting of her. And no one knows why she went to see that GP because by the time the police find the letter, it's 2006 and the seven-year mandatory retention of files has expired. So no one knows why she's at the doctor either. He gives, like, several different versions of how she's disappeared and because you don't know who she is, then people just kind of accepted it as... You know, he told friends that he came home and she just on, She just packed up and left, broke his heart, you know, just, just gone. And they all accepted that. In 2000, the months after her, when she was last seen at that GP's appointment, he went down unannounced to his mother-in-law's place. He went down to Marie's place in Tasmania. And Marie told the carer told, and gave a statement later to a court hearing for over the estates that It was almost like he was turning up to basically check on her that he did, that she did not know where her daughter was. Like he walked out in the backyard and looked over her fence, you know, climbed up and and looked over the wooden fence type of thing. Do you think that was all for show to make it look
0: as though he thought she might be hiding there? I, I think it was for show. For me, it was almost like the husband looking like he was the concerned husband. Yeah. You don't think he really thought she was there.
3: Yeah, yeah. And why, if you if you were that concerned, why wouldn't you be doing more? If you wanted to find her, why turn up at your mother-in-law's unannounced? What, what are you hoping to achieve? When you haven't even called the police at home. Yeah, yes. yeah. And you've gone a long way. Yeah. Whether his intent was to rattle his mother-in-law, I don't know, but she certainly was rattled enough to go and file a missing persons report. Why go and look over a fence? Like why turn up at someone's home and then you know, have you seen Susan, is she here? No, you know, then, then you go and go out the, through the house into the backyard and look over a wooden fence. Well, I don't know what that's supposed to achieve. He told Marie, oh, you know, Susan left me while we were shopping at Gimpy, which is a couple of hours drive away from where they were, and said, you know, she was starting to dress better. She was starting to wear makeup. I think she was seeing someone. And We were in the shopping centre and, you know, we were shopping and then I, I left her and then when I came back, she was gone. So there's another version of Susan's disappearance. But his visit really rattled Marie to the to the point where her health started to decline, according to her carer and, and people who knew her. And then secondly, prompted her to go and file a missing persons report. Now she apparently filed it with Tasmanian police, but it didn't go any further than her local station. But interestingly, Arthur still has not filed any kind of missing persons report because he's just telling people in in various versions that she left him, told the mum that she's obviously seeing someone else and then in a conversation with his boss in 2000, he said, well, I dropped her at the local bus stop because we argued over the dogs and she left me, brought me to my knees. You know, devastated me. But again, another version of what Susan was supposed to have done uh, to explain her absence. And then in 2005, Arthur writes to, uh, he's got local lawyers and he wants to know how can I sell the property because the property is in both their names. They're not legally married, but it's under the name of Arthur and Susan Thompson. But Thompson's spelt with an E, num no. It's weird. And he says, I want to sell the property. You know, she's disappeared. So the lawyers come back and basically said, look, these are your options. You can file a missing persons report. Uh, you can put the property into a trust, apply to court, or you could apply to the court and have her legally declared dead because no one's seen her. There's been no contact. There's been no nothing. But Arthur does Nothing. Nothing. There's still, there's still no missing persons report. So that doesn't happen until police basically late 2006, the police filed a missing persons report.
0: What prompted them to do that? Because I'm just thinking she's got no one advocating for her really. Her poor old mum is giving it a go in Tassie, but she's a million miles away geographically. And if she's got a carer, I'm, you know, reading between the lines, she's not
3: in peak condition. No, that was towards the end of her life, yeah. she did. And, and they didn't have a lot of family. They didn't have a lot of family here. She's got no
0: girlfriends. You know, it's reminding me of the Lynn Dawson story. You know, Chris Dawson got away with telling people that she had just walked out one day to join a religious cult, for Christ's sake, and at least Lynn had family and girlfriends saying for 20, 30 years, not possible, That is mm. not her. She would never do yeah. that. She'd never leave her kids'. But Susan doesn't have anyone doing that, rattling the sabre every single day, does she? So what prompted the police to open a missing persons file? So I guess that letter. Oh, so it was after his suicide and all Yeah, that. so after mm-hmm.
3: his suicide, they're, they're looking through this house, trying to understand. Obviously they've been in a relationship, but there's no sign of it. And, and then they start to, to ask questions. They start to look at bank accounts. Social Security, all the all the usual markers that you would, would go to in a missing persons case. And there's just no activity. There's no sign of life. And then by October 2006, I think that's when they filed the missing persons report. Uh, they also sent a brief off to the coroner basically saying that they, with all their investigations, uh, as we've talked about, there was no that this reclusive lifestyle of Susan's, the differing versions that they discovered Arthur had given to people. In one of the statements to police during during that 2006 investigation, one of Arthur's friends said that Arthur said confided to him once over a beer that he was paying penance. So him having to look after his mum by himself was him having to pay for penance for things that he had done wrong, but he never elaborated on it and the the only things that police found in Arthur's past in New South Wales was basically that, as a teenager, he had had uh, minor offences for violence, but nothing that was obviously any kind of clear signposts of anything in his adult life. Uh, again, the only thing to kind of cast a bit of a shadow over him was that referral to the psychiatrist. And, and you know, and him retaining a letter that painted him in a very, very poor light. Um, one of the detectives said that in the investigation that they felt that Arthur was controlling and headstrong after talking to, to different people who actually knew Arthur. And obviously that letter showed controlling behaviours that, you know, he's checking phone, phone records.
0: God, this is maybe the creepiest story I've ever heard in terms of like We've heard about a lot of poor ladies living terrible lives, but boy. We'll be back after the break with journalist Paula Donovan.
1: Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, get, 20, 20 get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at MintMobile.com/switch. switch.
2: $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full turns at mintmobile.com. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass fed whole milk instead of skim? Mm.
1: you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host.
0: Arthur Thompson designed his suicide on the remote property of Cushney in Queensland to be the tidy final chapter of his family's story. He believed he'd thought of everything, but the discovery of a photocopy of a letter written by his wife, Susan, to her mother opened a Pandora's box of questions he could never have imagined. Journalist Paula Donovan
3: picks up the story. So the coroner in 2007, the coroner said that he couldn't find how she died, couldn't find a cause of death uh, when she died, or where she died but he felt that she was gone and issued a death certificate so then in 2009 and 2014 because there's no wills on the estate and there's this big property and obviously the contents of it uh, the public trustee by this stage has taken control of the Thompson's estate so they in 2009 2014 Put out newspaper ads asking for anyone to come forward to contact him that may know the whereabouts of Susan, and there's no response. There's nothing. So they then apply to the Supreme Court to basically, on the basis that, um, and obviously this is partly fed through the police investigation, that Arthur has unlawfully killed Susan, and they and they basically apply to the Supreme Court for a ruling because they've got to do something with this, you know, with this estate. But the Supreme Court. It was interesting because the police in their submission basically said that they felt that she had possibly, well, they suspected that she had died at the hands of Arthur. Uh, The coroner couldn't give an explanation but had issued a death certificate. The Supreme Court came back and said, well, there's limited evidence to suggest that Arthur had killed her. There's scant evidence of any domestic violence. And, and this is back in 2014, I guess, and things like coercive control and everything, maybe they weren't part of that space yet. I don't know. And it's quite possible that she went and started a new life for herself. And if Arthur was to be believed, then it would make sense that she'd had no contact with anyone because she basically got a new name and gone off to pursue a life and they didn't declare her dead. Oh. So police to this day still keep Susan Thompson as an open missing persons case. So it was really, it was like, you've got all these different kind of legal arenas assessing what's happened to Susan and it only adds to the confusion. But in all likelihood, it seems like a, a relationship with domestic violence, you know, the isolation, the, uh, the controlling behaviour, maybe some physical violence as well. But, you know, and as we all know, Looking back on these cases, this kind of thing that happens behind closed doors may never reach the ears of authorities. So, who's to say?
0: Yeah, behind closed doors and out in such an isolated house.
3: Well, the, and the police put like cadaver dogs and dug up, you know, like they, they, they did everything that they could possibly do. Any areas that they thought that may have been somewhere that Arthur frequented or was familiar with, they searched, and there's still, there's still nothing you know, and no, answers, and a poor mum, like she died in 2020, I think suffering dementia and never knew what, what happened to her daughter, you know, and it would be something that would just be torture for her. What an awful feeling
0: for her mum too, to feel so powerless, to, to know something's happened to her child and to know that she's not strong enough to really fight it, she's running out of time, there's no one else. What an awfully powerless, helpless feeling to have.
3: Yeah, and a lot of people, I think, don't know what to do. No. How overwhelming it would be when you're coping with that dread, that dread that something's happened or something's not right, you know, which you felt obviously enough of uh, after Arthur's unannounced visit in 2000 to then go and file a missing persons report for her daughter, you know. And they they were in regular contact. They were in regular contact up until then, letters, phone, Mm. Uh, maybe not visits. I don't think. I don't know, maybe know. Susan never left that that property towards the end. I can't imagine Arthur made it a very comfortable
0: place to visit for Susan's family or for people he didn't want there,
3: other than the man shed. It's, it's a real. It's a case that's just doesn't give you much hope that that Susan's out there alive in in any way.
0: No, it doesn't, and it's just such. It it really does feel like a wasted life, doesn't it? It feels like this. This woman from the age of fifteen, her whole her life's just been nothing. It's been in locked away in a house
3: with Arthur. She seems like she's been in, in absorbed and engulfed by his life, and she doesn't kind of have any any independent identity in in any way, you know. And not even I mean I don't know when she quit her job, but obviously by the time they get to Cushnie on that in that rural setting, it's a life that is reclusive and. Just isolated, just so isolated. It's quite. I was really surprised. And, he, and then that, I remember that detective saying to me that he went and stood in the paddock and he said you could not see lights anywhere. It was just pitch black. You know, you can't see neighbours' lights, you can't see anything from the road. It truly was an isolated property. And he said if someone screamed, you would not hear it.
0: And she's just evaporated out there sometime. The way it was handled by the courts in the end by the Supreme Court is a disgrace obviously and it wasn't that long ago. I mean it was, you know, less than a decade ago at the moment and it does just go to show, you know, how far we've come hopefully but also how I think how the courts always seem to be behind. Don't you think? It feels it didn't surprise me that they would go, Ah, oh, well, we don't have any evidence that he killed her, that the Supreme Court's so far behind the
3: coroner's court. The law is always, is so restrictive, isn't it? You know, it's very, very tight in its definition and and human life's messy. Different burden of proof to the coroner's court, we know that. And trying to get someone who doesn't know your loved one to decide on their fate when you all do know them and then putting that within that very, very tight legal framework. Yeah. It's just sometimes things don't marry up and don't meet because... They're coming from a different perspective. you're coming from you know I mean Mrs. Shaw was up there, she gave it you know she gave a statement she spoke to the court, uh, the police put their version forward, but of course the two key players aren't there. Arthur's not there. Susan's not there. there's no real insight they they led a pretty I mean Arthur was also part of that reclusiveness, you know yeah. geographically they're isolated as well, but and she just didn't seem to do anything by herself. When she left that property, she appeared from what the police investigation found always to be with Arthur. So it's Arthur and Susan.
0: Or it's just Arthur. He's allowed to go to the pub. Mm. He, he is living what we'd
3: consider a normal bloke's life in that environment. Mm. I think that the, the police were heading in the right direction in that they suspect that she died at Arthur's hands and albeit no physical evidence but the the letter she wrote uh the way she lived you know the psychiatrist report the referral about his uncontrollable rages. i mean that was in 75 but who knows how that would play out and she did say that in that letter a few weeks before she disappears we're at each other's throats you know it's really you know life was really strained it wasn't good before she left it wasn't a bed of roses and him giving different versions of how she left so odd. You know, he's given legal advice as how he can move forward to sell the property and he and he doesn't act on any of it.
0: Yeah, every option, though, invites investigation, doesn't mm. it?
3: Yep, outside scrutiny.
0: What did the estate consist of? That huge property? I mean, was there a lot of money? I mean, we know there's a lot of furniture that's not been sat on. I
3: think there would have been... Maybe a hundred thousand or so, a hundred and twenty thousand. There's not in the property, I'm talking about cash and yeah. stuff. Like they live quite frugal. Yeah. So you think yeah. if
0: there was a brother, if there was someone rattling around, they would have come
3: forward. And Susan was a, a late child and an only child. Mm. And Arthur was an only child as well. Family came out from England. And I think it ended up going to some distant relatives, distant, distant relatives. Gosh, I'm, I'm, I'm speechless. It's just
0: really one of the worst stories I've ever heard, Paula. You know, as a journo, I mean, how, how many years have you
3: been in the biz? This is my 31st year of crime reporting.
0: Yeah, so it takes a lot. It must take a lot to, to shock you but also to have a story really stick with you.
3: Well, I get to tell Susan's story at least with this.
0: Yeah, is that, is that why? Do you think this one stuck with you? Because she didn't kind of have people
3: advocating for her? She doesn't have anyone? Part of it, yeah. Part of it's that, absolutely, and part of it's just wanting to know. Like, is this? There's for me that, like I said, there's so many red flags there, you know. And then, the coroner doesn't, can't, can't say how, when, where she died, but she died. The police believe it's, you know, suspect. I should say is foul play, and the Supreme Court said it's it's in law. It could be possible that she actually has gone and started a new life. Uh, limited evidence of of violence, uh, and that Arthur killed her. So, all those red flags to me. You you start digging and you want answers, but the answers for this never come. And it's just odd that there's just no sign of her in that house. There's no no clothes, no no nothing. It's just like she didn't exist. If they hadn't found that letter, there is is the most likely chance that they wouldn't have known about her because it's a, it's a country house that everything adds up to mum's died of natural causes. and once she's passed the son's taken his life and there's nothing suspicious around that. So for police, unless they'd found that letter, I don't think anything would have happened. Thank you to our guest today,
0: Paula Donovan, and thank you to everyone who's left us positive reviews. It's a great help to us in growing Australian true crime, which helps us keep making the show. If you need support after listening to this podcast, you can call Lifeline on 13 11 14 or contact one respect on one 737 732 or 1-800-RESPECT.org.au. Indigenous Australians can contact 13 yarn. On 139276 or 13yarn.org.au. Thank you for downloading this episode of Australian True Crime. We'll be back next week.
2: Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing, so we made ByHeart, a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com.
0: As promised, I'm thrilled to announce that our tickets for Australian True Crime Live are now available.